I saw these red and Elvis. They were sitting on the dock of the bay. They were playing cards and shooting dice, unaware of what was coming their way. Well, Sir Peter is up there waiting with a stretch and a book to go. To when there's no way out and only one way in, and when he's coming in, but nobody knows. So I ain't waiting on the up to happen. I ain't waiting on my luck to change. I'm gonna grab that boat by the horns and ride until I'm home on the range. I ain't waiting on the up to happen. I ain't knocking on an open door. Then I hope I don't disappoint myself before I find what I'm looking for. Before I find what I'm looking for. Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Andy Fairweather-Lowe and Waiting on the Up. One of the highlights from his new album, Flandang. As always, I've got Andy here on the Strange Brew today to talk about his fantastic career. Many solo highlights and we cover his career way back from the 60s in Amen Corner to his collaborations with artists including Eric Clapton and George Harrison and much more. So let's hear my chat. Hi, is that Andy? Is that Jason? Great, thank you very much for doing this. That's okay. I've just been listening to Flangdang the past week. It's just it's a cracking album and I understand that you basically did everything except the drums? Yep, I um, 
I make demos at home. I got I got a Boss 1180 uh, eight track machine, and uh, for years I make my demos at home. Uh, the quality, the recording quality is bad, but I love them. And but the one thing I hate about them all is the drum machine, because every track I do starts off like this, <laughs> and then we're in. Uh, but it helps me record the track. So I got offered a free week in Rockfield by Kingsley in the in the lockdown. He said, just come down. Just come down. I'll give you the week for nothing. Uh, it'd be good to see you. Uh, because I went into Rockfield in 1965, wow. uh, right in the beginning when it was a potato loft. Potato lo so I've got a bit of a history there. So I asked Paul if he'd come and just replicate all those drum patterns so I didn't have to tolerate that machine anymore. And everything else, yeah. I played bass with Roger Waters for 24 years. I love playing bass. Mm. And a few other things with Roger as well. But generally in the beginning, my, my role was to play bass. Yeah, the guitars and the harmonies. No keyboards, just guitars. <laughs> I loved it. I absolutely. Eventually, I had three weeks in Rockfield. Uh, the one for nothing, and I paid for the other two weeks, even though Kingsley did offer me the other weeks for nothing. And I went, nah, nah, I got to, I got to pay. I took money out of my pension. Ah. One second, Jason. Hello. Yes, jo John. I am on the phone, literally doing a a, a Zoom. So I'll, I'll call you back. Tada. Right, there we go. That actually was John David, uh, who was the bass player on La Boogaruga and my stuff, mm. and in the band um, in the 70s when I worked on A&M. Oh, there you go. Funny old world. No problem at all. The lyrical theme as well, there's just some great references there. I mean, Waiting on the Up is a great example. You've got that theme of grabbing the bull by the horns. Yeah, thank you, because uh, I'm really pleased lyrically. I don't know where it comes. I mean, I spent a lot of time writing them, and then when I look back and I go, yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of the lyrics, uh, but it does take me a long time. It isn't something that just – I have to put the time in. I have to waste tons of paper before I go, that's it. I like that. When was your last album of original material then? Well, the last solo album, literally, that was me and not me and the Low Riders, was 2000 – yeah, 2007. 2000. Wow. Yeah, I was uh, – I finished the Dark Side of the Moon tour with Roger and I'd released the album. And uh, I got a phone call from Roger saying, you know, uh, we're going to do the wall um, and I'd, I'd like you to be on it. And I said, but, but there's not much for me to do. There wasn't much for me to do on Dark Side of the Moon. For half the set, I was sitting out at the back in big stadiums watching other people play. Mm. And there was going to be even less for me to do. And I went, Rod, there's just this, you know. It's not enough for me to do. There were two. I'm not the guitar player in that setup. Yeah. I'm sort of a utility, the utility player. Um, a bit of this and a bit of that. And I went. Oh, no, my album's coming out. I got you know. I'm 65 now, and I'm you know if I'm going to want to be known as a guitar player, I better get out there and do it. So um, so, and he said, well, we'll find something for you to do. And I went, you know, I was a fabulous offer, but I mean, I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. We're, Still very, very good friends with Roger. Spoke to him the other day. Yeah, that that relationship is really strong, as my friendship with Eric and, and 99.5 of the people that I ever work with. Yeah. A stand-up, again, has got one of those overarching themes of the album, Believe in Yourself as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I figure I'm, figure I'm just writing the same song over and over again, and I just get a few details every now and again. It's funny, I, I just got sent a clip from me on the old Grey Whistle Test in 1970, maybe six or something, playing Spider Jive in live. Yeah. 
with hair and uh, and an acoustic guitar and a real good band. And you know what? I loved it. Yeah, it was all right. I'm, yeah, I'm proud. I can look back and go, yeah, that was good. And Spider Jive, and I love the lyric of Spider Jive, and I play that now. I just, yeah, I'm going to hopefully keep on writing lyrics that make me go, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about what I like. In truth, it's all about what I like. At the end of All Roads as well, I mean, oh, that's a special song. I'm, uh, it, funny enough, and I can tell you this now, it's a song I wish I'd never written. Yeah. But being, I'm, I'm in a situation now and I just mm. wish I'd never written that song. But I also think, for me, it it's, could be the best song I've ever written. Yeah, That's my judgment looking subjectively. It was the last song we recorded on the album. It was about two o'clock in, in, in the morning. Uh, myself and Paul, the drum kit was set up. I got the acoustic guitar and I sat in front of the drums and I played it and I sang it. I then put the bass on and then put the harmonies on afterwards. What I would have loved is a big orchestra mm. playing, you know, big string section. But the truth is the album was meant to be just me playing. Obviously, yeah. Paul was there. But, and to put strings on would have just taken, taken away from the fact that, yeah, I produced it. A lot of the noises that come out were the noises that I got from my from my demos. The only one thing, well, the, the engineer Joe Joe F. Jones was just phenomenal. I have a little Supro amp, uh, and I have an Ascot amp with an eight-inch elliptical speaker, and I've got my own amps, and I, I love a dirty old sound. Hmm. And Joe said, well, I've got this tape recorder. Why don't you plug into this ferrograph? And I did. Oh, what a sound. It's on uh, Waiting on the Up, and it's on, it's on a lot of the tracks, hmm. but that guitar sound comes from Joe's tape recorder. Fabulous. Down the end of all the roads 
got a real classic sound that doesn't date you've got elements of blues and, and country it's one of those albums that you could listen to in, in 20 years time and it will just be timeless is that something that you kind of aim for no no don't aim for it that's that's what i do i i, I mean i'm out of sync it's it it's like with me and my guitar i um i plug in with a lead straight note i never got through to that rack mounted system that everyone got into and for some reason I carried. I never changed, and now it's coming back round to that. I have a, a verse and a chorus, a verse and a chorus, a middle eight and a verse and a chorus. It's and, and I never, I never sort of took a detour from that. That's how I like listening to songs, and that's how I'm writing songs. And unfortunately, it's way out of kilter with what's going on now. But uh, it's like I said, I took my money out of the pension, and I did it because I wanted to do it, and. Uh, yeah, I know that it's it's not radio. You know, it's not whatever's being played on the radio now. In fact, Zonatone, my last album with the Low Riders, was yeah. taken to the BBC, and the guy, the head of BBC then for Radio Two, said, "Don't bother me bringing me that. I'm not going to play. It. I'm not going to play his album because yeah, I've had my 15 minutes, maybe maybe two or three times. So it's the way of the world, but it's not stopping me from uh, actually getting out and playing it and. We finished now just about a month ago on the road, and I played about four songs from from the new album on that, and they really worked live, which was a real, you know, that was a real bonus for me. For me, it's just a sound that will constantly keep coming round, even if it's not the flavour of the month at the minute. There's a bit of a thread reading about you, your early inspirations, and one of them was when you saw the, the Rolling Stones in 1964. 28th of February, 1964. I know, because Bill Wyman... The Rolling Stones coffee book that right. he wrote, fabulous book. I like pictures. I don't like to read too much. And it had the set list from that gig in Cardiff. And they started, they weren't top of the bill. Mike Son and Billy Davis, yeah. I think, were top of the bill. Jet Harris was on the bill. Bern Elliott and the Fenmen, the Leroy's were on that bill. And the Stones, I think they started the second half. And the first song they played was Talking About You, and uh, which was confirmed by Bill's set list, which was in his book. Yeah, and it got me. It got me like a virus, and it still got me, thankfully. And that ultimately led you to learning the guitar and, and then into Amen Corner? Yeah. Um, I played guitar before before I formed Amen Corner. Right. And uh, when I formed Amen Corner, I split up two bands in Cardiff, one called the Deckers. I took uh, Neil, the guitar player, and Clive from that band, 
who were bass and guitar. And Neil was my brother-in-law too. Um, I mean, he's not with us anymore, but he was my brother-in-law. Mm. And then Brother John and the Witnesses, I took Dennis and Blue from that band. Uh, Dennis was the drummer, Blue was the keyboard player. Both ended up playing with, uh, mm. with the Bee Gees. And both, when I was at my lowest moment, both became tax exiles in America through, uh, you know, Saturday mm. uh, Night Fever and Jive Talking and all of that. And I'd formed the band and then realized, well, there's a guitar and a bass player and we're playing we're playing soul music, basically. So it was Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn. And there was no place for me who wanted to be like, who wanted to be Steve Cropper and a bit of Eric Clapton mm. too. So I decided just to sing. I thought that's easy because uh, I didn't have to worry about breaking a string or tuning the guitar. Um, so, so I did that for, for a while and then it, it just wore me down. Uh, being that I'm not a great singer, I'm just a guy who sings. We were only playing for about 20 minutes a lot of the time, uh, maybe 25. Uh, and a lot of people weren't listening, which was part of the thing about being a successful pop group. You just get on there and people start screaming and you go, wow, this is really good. <laughs> and then night after night, traveling all those miles and you're going, but nobody's listening. Um, yeah, it's a funny old deal, the pop music world. It is. I've previously spoken to uh, Jeff Christie, who was in a group called The Outer Limits, who were on that amazing oh, 1967 yeah. Hendrix Floyd Move yeah. tour that you were on as well. That must have been quite remarkable. All that talent in one place. It was. It was really. Spe- I mean, I can still, I can still see me sort of up in the air, looking down at the sound check at the Albert Hall. Uh, when Hendrix was running through his, his sound check there and uh, he got on the drums. Uh, I remember him sitting on the drums and I remember what he played because he went like this. It was Spanish Castle Magic was the song, yeah. but he was just dabbling around on the drums. Uh, yeah, we watched that. That was twice a night, not at the Albert Hall. It was just once, but all the other venues. And the Outer Limits, yeah, I remember them because they came. Pete Drummond was the uh, ampere. Outer Limits would come on and play one song. <laughs> and I, we, we had a few, we had about 15 minutes. I think The Move had 15 minutes. Hendrix had 30 minutes. The Pink Floyd, it's funny because um, 1967 that was, and it was about 84 that I get a phone call from Roger Waters. Never spoken or heard anything between 67 and 84. And I get a phone call and he says, um, would I like to, go up and um, come to his studio and uh, see if we get on. And I did, and we did get on, and we we still get on. Uh, you know, he's, yeah, no, he's really good, good to me. I was there for 23, 24 years, and uh, if it wasn't good, I'd have gone. It was fabulous. A mix of styles with Amen Corner. You've got things like Gin House Blues, and then you've got the more pop side, like Ben Me yep. Shape Me, where you were kind of pushed in a more commercial direction. Yep, absolutely. Gin House was the, the first single. Uh, and uh, I saw Zoot Money and the Big Roll Band, you know, Josie Fame, mm. Ruby Goins and the Nighttime. As all those, Alexis Corner would all come to Cardiff and play, Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds. And uh, Paul Williams, the bass player with Zoot Money, his song in the set was Gin House. And I saw that, and then we we adopted that Amen Corner. It was just three notes, so it's fairly, we could play boom, 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 boom. You know, we could all manage that. And, it, yeah, it did It did all right. And then our second single was World of Broken Hearts. I really liked that song. Mm. Uh, but that didn't really do that well, even though we tried to buy it in to the charts. <laughs> <laughs> Not we as in I, but. It was common. Yeah. 
So, and we bought it in thinking it was going to go, but even buying it in, it got down to the lower 30s, I think. Every night you find me in the only world I own It's a crowded place that's filled with people all alone It's a place that I And then our manager suggested um, we have a look at this song, Bend Me, Shape Me, which I did not like by the American breed. It was already a hit in America. Mm. But I thought, and he said, give it a go, give it a go. What's, what, you know, what, what do you lose? Uh, so I had a piano riff that I pinched off Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, uh, Live at the Whiskey A Go-Go, I think it was called. or live, Yeah, Live at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And the piano riff went, da 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 So it was nothing original. And I put that song to that piano riff, which I pinched from uh, Smokey Robinson, uh, and kept the chorus, obviously. Uh, I didn't like the brass on it. We don't have a trumpet. We, ne- we never had a trumpet player, but um, the brass was put on when we, we we were away, and I didn't like it at all. Reminded me of Herb Albert and the Tijuana brass, who I like, by the way, but that's not the point. It, you know, they did it when we weren't there, 
And I threatened, you know, threatened to quit and if you release that and all of that. But it became successful, and I liked that. <laughs> I liked that. So we we started to follow that path. Yes, yes, we did. But up until then, Ginos was the only blues number in the set. Every other song we played, Amen Corner, was a soul number. Mm. You know, out on Stax Atlantic, uh, you know, not so much Tamla. We might have squeezed in a couple of those. But generally, you know, we were a soul band, and that was it. Yeah, I had Blue Weaver on the pod before, and he, he told me in vivid detail, if Paradise is half as nice as a, a song that, that won't go away, it, it's got a bit more of a ballad feel. I think that was, was that number one as well? Yes, it was. Um, we were. I found, well, I say I found it was given, I think Alan Jones, when a connection, turned up one, one day in the house when we lived on Harrow on the Hill. The Regatza 77 was the single. And it was half as nice. And if you ever get hold of that copy and listen to it, it's note for note what we did. We just copied that record, except it had me singing on top. That was the only difference. And I still play that song now, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Part of the set, I usually leave it to the end because a lot of people that come to see me basically want to hear that song. <laughs> And I figure if I play it in the beginning, they'll bugger off. So <laughs> in the interval. So I leave it to the end. So they have to wait, you know, because Amen Corner was only three years of my life. Uh, my solo career with A&M was only three years. And I've been playing guitar with people for 24, 26 years. And that's what I do. That's how I made a living. I didn't make a living from Amen Corner or from A&M.
I think you had management difficulties. Was oh, that? Oh, good God, no. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, they, they, they certainly, we got in at a certain level and uh, we were passed around at that level and then finally ended up, we, we were sold to Andrew Oldham uh, with immediate, and then he went into liquidation, put himself in as the biggest guy who was owed the most money and uh, just a total mess, split up Amen Corner and just got rid of them, got rid of those people. Best thing we ever did. We never got the money, but and had I got the money, I, I wouldn't have done anything good with it. I, I wouldn't have done anything sensible. I would have just had further to fall because I was definitely on my way down. So Fairweather, yep. big hit with Natural Sinner as an example. That was a way of sort of casting away that Amen Corner. Yeah, well, basically, it was we broke up Amen Corner because that was the name that was going to be sold on by Andrew Oldham to EMI when they went into liquidation. So um, put an end to that, uh, and RCA Neon were prepared to give us money to pay off our debts, which is between ten and fifteen thousand pound in nineteen sixteen, uh, nineteen sixty nine. So we took the money, paid the debt off. Yeah, and Natural City was a hit. I, I bring that in every now and again into the set. It's not always in there. And then that only lasted, a, you know, a couple of years. Uh, two at the most, I think.
And then I went home, just went home back to Wales for a couple of years and then came back up to A&M in 70, 74, I think it was. I went off to I went off to San Francisco and then Nashville and recorded Spider Jive. And I really like Spider Jive and I love that album. Because you played with some fantastic um, musicians for Spider Jiving, didn't you? Oh, well, that was Elliot Mazer. I right. got introduced to Elliot Mazer at A&M. You know, they were, they were sending up people ideas for me to have a producer. And Elliot was one of them. We started talking and uh, he went, he said, would you come to San Francisco? And I went... Because the streets of San Francisco were big then, yeah. and uh, and I used to watch that uh, Michael Douglas and Carl Molden, and I thought, yeah, San Francisco would be good, yeah, because um, he had a studio that that he used in San Francisco. So I said, yeah, of course I will. So I went there, but I landed for a day, and I thought I was going into a studio, and um, I had to wait while he was finishing off Gordon Lightfoot, and when he finished off Gordon Lightfoot, he'd had. In America at that time, there was this thing about biorhythms, and he had his biorhythms done, and he went, it's looking pretty bad for me now for the next three weeks. I think you should go back home. And I went, I'm not going back home. I'm staying here till we do this thing. And eventually we went in the studio, and we were nine days in San Francisco and three in Nashville, because Elliot had also worked on the Area Code 615 album. So... um we, you know, we had them, we had the Memphis Horns, we had most of Area Code 615 on there. Fabulous musicians. Yeah, we really, it was a, it was a yeah, it was a fantastic time. Unfortunately, I still haven't paid back <laughs> what it cost, but there you go. Reggae Tune was a, a big hit in that period, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, well, it was a hit. It was, yeah, it was, right. it was a top 10 hit. Um, and originally it was a country song. Right. Uh, which I just, I, you know, in fact, when I play it live now, I play it, I usually, I sometimes start the show with just me playing on acoustic guitar and picking that song. And eventually, Denny Sywell was the drummer oh. in the band. And Denny had been on um, uh, Live and Let Die with Paul McCartney because he was in Paul's band, Paul McCartney's band. And we started talking and I said, oh, I loved it. You know, I wasn't really fond of the song, but I loved that reggae bit in it. And... Uh, we started playing reggae tune and he started playing that reggae beat. And when we finished the, the track, it, was, it wasn't because the chorus was Ushana, Ushana A. And he, he just said, you know, that, that reggae tune. And that's how it became reggae tune. It was written down as that reggae tune.
And the hits kept coming out from your next LP. There was Wide-Eyed and Legless. Yeah, but the hit kept <laughs> The hit kept coming. Yeah. I had a lot of airplay with uh, Booga Rooga and uh, Champagne Melody was another one. But in truth, yeah, Wide-Eyed, Wide-Eyed did well. Um, it struggled at first. I think they released it in the summer and then released it again more sort of November time, winter time. Yeah, and it took off. And I I, pl- I play that now too, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really glad I've got those kind of things in the arsenal, if you know what I mean, sticking around. Yeah, you were working with Glyn Johns at that time, weren't you? Yeah, man. My career, the people that I've worked with, it's about for me. It's about who you know, and I happen to know Glyn Johns as a real good friend too. So. Um, whether it was Eric, whether it was Joe Satriani, whether it was The Who, whether it was Stevie Nicks, Linda Ronstadt, the list went on. It was, he'd sort of say, if he was doing anything, uh, oh, let's get Andy in. Hmm. The Arms Tour with Ronnie Lane, 1984. I was staying with Glyn, and uh, Ronnie Lane had been on the phone to Glyn saying there was any chance he could put something together to raise some money for these hyperbaric units because yeah. Ronnie had uh, MS and the hyperbaric units, if they put them in, it seemed to, you know, seemed to work for them. And Glyn went, yeah, all right. Then um, I was sitting by the by Glyn's pool and he went, you'll do it, won't you, Andy? And I went, yeah, because I wasn't working, by the way. I said, yeah, of course I will. Next phone calls with Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, etc. the full list. So, um, yeah, my connection with Glyn Apart from being the fantastic producer, and I love the sound that he gets. He came back for Sweet Soul for Music as well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm another another real good friend, real good friend, a fabulous producer.
Another artist that you've worked with is George Harrison, and he tried to get you involved in his solo work in the seventies, didn't he? Yeah, not so much in the seventies. No, we right. we were we've sort of we knew each other because um, both Ray Cooder fans. Right, uh, I'd seen him at a few Ray Cooder concerts, stuff like that. And it was in the nineties. I went to Japan. Basically, it was Eric Clapton's band, and I got I got sort of brought into that band uh, at that time. And we we did a couple of months in. Uh, in Japan, playing live with George, that was pretty special. Uh, then he did a concert at the Albert Hall for the Natural Law Party, and I got called for that. And then uh, he was guesting with with Gary Moore at um, at the Albert Hall for two nights, and he just phoned me up and he said, Do you fancy coming up and playing with me? And I went, yeah, why not? And then halfway through the conversation, she said, well, it's a long way, isn't it? And I said, I'm coming. <laughs> So I went to Friar Park and, uh, we, you know, we stayed the night. Then we went, played for two nights. Oh, man, I, I, I loved him. It was, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, he, he was good. He was good. My pal, I think is what we say. My pal. He was my pal. Yeah, he's a lovely man. Very funny. Very funny. A fabulous slide player, too. Uh, and what a songwriter. What a, you know, talk about in a category all of his own. You know, nobody wrote, nobody wrote songs like George. And that's a fact.
even songs that arguably are slightly lesser known, like Old Brown Shoe, are just classics. Yeah, it's funny. I did watch a little bit of that Get Back thing. Uh, and the beginnings, he's sitting at the piano and he's just going, and he's thinking, yeah, that's how songs start. That's it. Yeah, fabulous. And I love playing that song. It, and I had to learn that. I had to learn his solo on that too. Oh man, that was tricky. Yeah, that solo. Yeah, it was tricky. But uh, I did. I did manage. I certainly, you know, it's on the live in Japan album. So and and I, and I play that back every now and again and go, yeah, you did all right, Andy. You did all right. And give me love. The slide solo in give me love. Ooh, I had my work cut out for me. I'm telling you. It must have been quite moving at the concert for George as well. Oh, staggering. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually, the three weeks of rehearsal were, were really precious. Uh, yeah, the night was a particularly spectacular event. Uh, keeping in mind that if you buy the DVD and you, you watch that concert, there's no overdubs. Right. There's a few things that maybe have been removed. And you, if you've got six guitar players or something, you can't, you can't have them all up there in the mix. So... But there's no overdubs. That is live. That's what happened on the night. That's how special that band was that Eric put together. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty man. And the guy who did the the, the sound on it uh, was Ryan Ule, Ule uh, Ryan. I can't think of his second name. Um, did a fantastic job. You know, with with Jeff Lynn as well. Yeah, it was beyond special. It's um, yeah, magical beyond belief. Another artist you've had a, an even more stronger association with uh, playing is Eric Clapton. How is it playing with such a, a remarkable guitarist like Eric? It's fabulous. He's, um, he's a lovely, gracious, giving man. It's not like a competition. Um, mm. uh, for some, I mean, I'm, I'm a rhythm guitar player. There aren't many rhythm guitar players out there. And in a setup like that, you need a rhythm guitar player. It's like you need a goalkeeper in a football team. And I fitted in. I was the round peg in the round hole. And plus, I worked for him like I'd like someone to work for me. I mean, I've been out front. I found being a guitar player with other people was a fairly easy ride, relatively, mm. as opposed to being the turn, being the one who's worried about selling tickets or whether his voice is intact. All I had to do was do my job properly and focus on it and not take it for granted and be be grateful. And i got to tell you, I was very grateful. And, I, you know, yes, he gave us the opening slot just recently uh, uh, at the Albert Hall. And I was meant to do Europe with him as well, but he got COVID. Yeah. And then circumstances were that I, could, I couldn't go back out again. But And I did. We played on his I Still Do album, which was in 2016. So I'm back and forth every now and again. And uh, it was great to be back in his company. And then at the Albert Hall, we did like a reprise of the unplugged thing where I'd go up and play in the acoustic set too. And that was magical. Uh. Absolutely. You know, you got, you know, you got Nathan, you got Doyle, you got Katie. It's like, yeah, it was, um, yeah, we opened that door and there we were. There we were again. And it was so easy. It's so beautiful. So effortless. Was that material like Layla, for example, the acoustic? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we did. We did Layla. Uh, nobody knows you when you're down and out. And we did Smile. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to do Smile. He was do Gary Brooker, another fabulous friend who, yeah. who who just passed away actually. And it was like they were working. Gary and, and and Eric were working on a version of Smile, 
And then he said, he asked me if, uh, yeah, well, should we do song? I said, yeah. So I got to sing it with him. I got to sing a harmony on, on a beautiful song. That is a fabulous song. And I got to take the solo too. So that was, um, yeah, that's a lovely moment. I've been lucky. I've been very lucky. mentioned um roger waters earlier and the scale even must have been that first tour that you did on, on pros and cons of, of hitchhiking must have been just something else staggering so when we're rehearsing and we're rehearsing without any of the visuals and then all of a sudden we get we get to america and uh, they set up the visuals it's three full-sized uh cinema screens back projected 
And at one point at Radio City Music Hall, I went out and I went out and listened to it. <laughs> it was a lot on tape and watched this thing. And oh, it was phenomenal. It was in quad too in the in the hall. Jets taking off, rain, dogs barking. It was ah, spectacular. And then the wall in 1990. Well, to this day, I, I, I watch that thing every now and again. And uh, not the new one. The new one's fabulous. It's got you know better graphics and all of that. But that show in Berlin in 1990, with the East German Army driving over the front of the stage and real helicopters coming in, and the Berlin Symphony. It might have been the East German Symphony Orchestra as well. And have those cranes, the most amount of those bloody cranes with great big lobs of cement hanging over your head that have ever been put in one place at one time. Yeah, pretty memorable. Yeah. And there's been more too, you know, from the, the world tour. I did two world tours with Roger and one with Eric. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. And then back to your solo material, a sweet soulful music was a return to your songwriting and getting a, a new album out. Yeah, it was. Um, I'd had twenty, certainly at least twenty-three years with Roger and thirteen, most probably with Eric, of playing other people's material. And uh, I got to sixty-five, and I realised if I want, you know, I I wanted to play what I wanted to play, as opposed to what I should play with other people. Uh, the only way I was going to do that is if I made my own al- album and went out with the band. And uh, I had enough songs hanging about. And I went in with Glyn, recorded it in Battersea, in a studio in Battersea. And um, that was it. That I continued, and I'm still on the road now from, from that point on. And I have, I've been back with Eric, and I've, I've visited Roger in America. You know, he flew me out to see a couple of the shows there and, and in Europe as well. So it's been... Uh, yeah, it's been a fabulous experience, and I've definitely benefited benefited as a guitar player by getting out there and doing it. Because uh, "Him for My Soul" is a, a song from that period that again won't go away. And I think Joe Cocker also did his his own version as well. Yeah, Joe Joe got hold of that. The reason Joe got hold of that too was um, Ethan Johns, Glyn's son, produced that album. Mm. There's the connection for that. And Joe, they liked that song so much. His album was called "The Hymn for My Soul." And uh, his tour that he went out with was called the Hymn for My Soul Tour. So, I mean, there you go. You know, I, sh- I should retire now and go, right, that's it. We're done. And Joe, I love Joe's version of it too. So, yeah, that there's a couple of, I would say, there's a couple of great songs on that album. <laughs> but I would say that, wouldn't I? I saw myself today That's now then I look Setting by my invisible light Sorrow cut me like a knife Nobody knows you without any doubt Nobody wants to know you when you're down and out So sing a hymn for my soul Stand by me as I go
And then to close, you just mentioned your, your new album as well, Flandang, and just so many songs that you can pick from that. And again, they've got that similar theme that we were discussing at the start. I mean, Scar 67 has got that yeah. great line, I ain't waiting for things to come my way. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, I am waiting on for th- I am waiting on for things ah. my way. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, uh, like I say, they don't come easy, those things, but I, I, I do spend a lot of time. Somebody wants my soul. I mean, God, I mean, the groove on that. And Darker the Midnight. I love that. In fact, good grief, I think. I've got me a party. Yeah, got me. I've, I made my demo of Got Me a Party. I filmed I filmed myself. My, a cousin of mine came in, and in my front room, I filmed a version of me with my demo. You know, I played my guitar along with it. And uh, it's hard writing a simple song. Mm. And that's a simple song. And, uh, yeah, I like it. I like the lyric. I like the groove. And I love the solo. The solo took me ages, but um, it's kind of got an divider on it. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm proud of that album. Flang Dang is, and I like the title of the album. I love the album cover. I'm a, I'm a happy I'm a happy budgie at the moment. What was the inspiration for the title? Um, I was watching some blues document. Funny, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, just come back. I was watching some blues documentary, you know, a couple of old guys down, down the front. And the one guy said, well, we don't want any of that hoochie-coochie-flang-dang stuff, do we? <laughs> and, and I wasn't going to do the hoochie-coochie thing, but, <laughs> but the flang-dang, I wrote it down straight away, uh, and I wrote it in big letters, and then I coloured it in, and I went, I like that. Just like I like spider jiving, la boogaruga, bebop and holler, <laughs> a mega shebang, you name it, like <laughs> something clicks, and I go, yeah, flang-dang. I like playing down. And it, it's really good to be happy with the with what you've done because no matter what happens, if nothing happens, you go, Well, I, I'm happy with it. That's it's if if you do something and you think uh, it's not really up to what I want, but I'm gonna put it out, and somebody knocks it for one thing and you go, Yeah, well, I wasn't happy with it and anyway. Well, I'm happy with it. So that'll do. Whatever happens, I'm comfortable knowing I ha- there's not a moment where I go, oh, I wish I'd done that. Apart from the strings on um, End of All the Roads. But th- that couldn't be because that would take it away from the fact that um, I, yeah. I did everything myself except the drums. And i got to say, meeting up with Joe Jones, the engineer, was the, you know, was the perfect meeting 
for me. He was just absolutely fabulous. Keeping in mind, there was a lot of overdubs. There's a lot of running back and forth. There's a lot of just me <laughs> back and forth. And he was just phenomenal. That's great, Andy. What a pleasure it is to speak with you and even greater pleasure to listen to your fantastic new album. I wish you all the best with that release. And uh, just to say thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank you. You know, it's it's been years since we talked, you know, I've talked. Mm. And now this, this album was done in 2019 uh, and 2020 was finished. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, get, I'm getting to talk. And like I say, I, I love it. And thank you. Thank you for like for liking the album. You know, yeah, I love it. It's a pleasure. Take care. And you too. Thanks, Jason. All right, then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.